would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. You may not have heard of Kevin Abbott, but you're not likely to forget him. It was a really, really hard lesson. If you don't start with hype, you can't get hype. He was at Funky Buddha before the fairy tale exit that happened in 2017. He was the brewer back when they had a one-barrel system in 2010, He was there for the 30-barrel expansion in 2014, but he was safely gone when they sold for $80 million four years later. Then he was at Due South during their formative years. Due South, the closer tasting room a few months ago. So then he worked his way up from sweat equity brewer at Barrel Monks Brewing to partner and operations manager. He's distributed nationally, then internationally. He started with traditional cork and cage and is now playing the fucking can game. He merged with another brewery. The reason we needed to talk to Kevin is that Kevin knows some things. His insights should inform your plans and educate your opinions of what's to come in this industry. And he's a hell of a lot of fun to interview. All right, Kevin, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, for giving a rich and hearty fuck about helping all my guests be better in their careers. Yeah, I'm interested in talking to you today simply because you've been at the helm of three breweries. Uh, Your experience, they all had three different stories, three different unique plots and characters and beers. So we're going to get into all those details and some fun stories, I'm sure, from your brewing childhood. But first, let's get to know you. Who were you before you were a brewery owner? I worked in the restaurant industry for damn near 15 years. And I'm talking about working at banquet halls all the way up to being a bartender, manager. My last job in that industry was a wine steward. I did that for almost seven years. So I was in wine before I was in beer. And I thought that was going to be my end-all, be-all. I thought that was going to be my career. Until I, I hired a guy who told me he would teach me about beer if I taught him about wine. Here I am. Have you always lived in Florida? I was born and raised in Detroit. Hmm. Down here when I was 21. So my entire adult life has basically been in Florida. So I'm essentially a Floridian. All the time of your life that you had control over was in Florida? Exactly. The first major decision I made was following a, following a girl down to Florida. Not not my wife, by the way. A different girl that long, long in the past. But it ended up, work, ended up working out okay for me. Yeah, you got what you needed at the end. So congratulations. So at what point did you fall just madly head over heels with beer? How did that transition go from just tasting it as a wine steward to going, you know what, I'm going beer? I think it was knowing I could make good beer in South Florida and I couldn't make good wine in South Florida. <laughs> yeah. right? You can get must and get it shipped over and you can get juice and you can make wine in your basement. Well, there's no basement in Florida, but in your garage in Florida. But it's not going to taste very good. Grapes don't travel very well, not nearly as well as barley and hops can travel. So I think it was when I realized I could make something because I I love wine. I was in charge of the beer at the place that I was buying wine for, as well as the whiskey and as well as every other aspect. So I loved all the spirits and the alcoholic beverages. But I think it was knowing that I could actually learn about it. And I was one of those people that was an autodidact. I wanted to learn about everything. 
I was totally self-taught in wine and I figured out oh, I can be totally self-taught in two different disciplines and maybe one day make a little bit of money off. Of it. At least have a bunch to drink too. Yeah. So did you at that, at that point begin dabbling in home brewing or how did that come about? Yeah, it was my, the guy who taught me about beer was himself a home brewer. He was a member of the Palm Beach Draftsman, which is a local homebrew club that's still around to this day. And we just started doing these, we had a beer meetup. We started a beer meetup at a local bar called Coffee District, which was right down the street from where I work. This was like a, the first craft beer bar in the area that had everything. It was a beer wasteland at the time. So we just had Chimay and Delirium Tremens and Dogfish at 90 minutes, but it was getting it. So we started, I started going there because I got into beer and then we started doing homebrew classes outside every Monday night. And we might get two people to show up. We might get 10, but it was mostly a reason to get together with like-minded craft beer people that were get, kind of getting into the industry for the first time, all learn about it together. And lo and behold, most of the people, it has to be 90%, 90% of the people that came to those meetings ended up working in craft beer at some point. <laughs> the industry was so small that there was no professionals. It was the wild, wild west. You you, they were hiring people. Have you ever drank a beer? Well, then we need you to come sell because we have more than we can move. You know, the industry has changed so much. It has. I remember those days actually. And in some ways, to be honest, they, it was a wasteland, like you said. But I am not going to lie and say that I don't miss the days when those all the choices were pretty badass. Like there was never a dog in the bunch, right? Like we, we, the pendulum has swung too far. <laughs> right? <laughs> there's there's got to be a happy medium, but there never is. There's a happy medium. It was probably uh, 2012, <laughs> and then it just yeah. passed it. I know. And, and at a breakneck pace that no one seems to be able to catch up with, too. But yeah. All right. So obviously, a big part of your story is the the first brewery that you worked in. When did you start there? Because they sort of moved in in 06, but then really started kind of claiming they were originated in 2010, right? Well, it was 2009, the best of my recollection. And my wife tells me I have the worst memory for dates. So oh, good. We're going to test this. Oh, yeah. This is going to be terrible for me. I believe it was 2009. The the Funky Buddha, its humble beginnings were as a hookah bar that was pretty much just frequented by FAU, our local college students, doing really, really bad slam poetry, smoking <laughs> hookahs. And they brought in craft beer. And they were one of the first early adopters to craft beer in the area. And it was a, it was a, it was a hallway. I mean, it was a tiny little space. Ryan Sense and his partner at the time, Jim Bast, they were homebrewers. They had started homebrewing probably a little bit before I did, but around the same basic time because they were lovers of beer. And they decided they wanted to open up a brewery. And at that time, there was literally one brewery in South Florida. And that was Bruzies, which was a kind of chain. Well, there's two locations, but it was a restaurant that had a brew house in it. Right. And I'm trying to think of the, the national chain that does that. But it was that model of they did no distribution. It was really a restaurant first. The brewing aspect was the was the hook. That was the, the gimmick, so to speak. And they made some pretty good beer. And I, I know I knew the brewer very well eventually. But that was it. There was nobody. There was no Cigar City. There was no any of those breweries had not come to pass. Yet. Well, even in when did Cigar City open up. That was obviously over in Tampa, Florida, but maybe they had just started. But even in Florida, South Florida for sure, but Florida in general, there just wasn't a lot of breweries. So we we kind of jumped in feet first. Uh, they put a lease in on a building in the same plaza that was four times the size. And we basically built a homebrew system on steroids and started 
really teaching ourselves what to do. And it was painful along the way. <laughs> so how did you meet Ryan? Did you meet him like at a homebrew thing or did he put an ad in the paper and you just stumbled in? No, I was a, a patron. The person who owned the bar that I told you about, Coffee District, we'd always go out to local other craft beer bars as they kind of popped up. We all went over there one night. I met him and we ended up hitting it off. The big stand-up comedy fan and loved whiskey and just a lot of stuff that I was into. And we just became friends. There was no possibility of working there or anything because I didn't even know necessarily in the beginning that they were planning this, this brewery. But then when it finally came up that they wanted to do it, he didn't want to brew every batch of beer. He was the owner. Right. Mm -hmm. So someone was going to take on that responsibility. And his partner at the time, Jim Bast, who's long gone, he was a fireman. His participation was limited to what his schedule could. So I just kind of raised my hand and said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll brew the beer. I, I've done 10 homebrew batches by this time. I've read a lot of books and tried to learn about it. But I did the exact same thing I did with when I got into wine. I said, I've got a little bit of knowledge and I'll jump in feet first. I'll teach myself everything I can and see if I can make a go of it. And that's really how it began. So how were some of those early batches? I'll preface that by saying some of mine were horrid and, you know, drinkable. But by but sure, there were some issues going in there. And, and most of it just trying to use commercial equipment. You were lucky enough at least to start on, what, a one and a half barrel? So the system itself was five, five, five 355-gallon scale drums mm -hmm. with holes punched in them and some quick disconnects put on. We had a couple Blickman, three Blickman fermenters, conical fermenters. And we had a, a heat exchanger, a small little homebrew heat exchanger. So we had some stuff that we had bought, but we had fabricated some stuff ourselves as well. So we actually, to get that system, there was another brewery that was way up north, comparatively speaking, up in Tequesta. They were doing some beer out of a restaurant in a small way, ended up becoming a Tequesta Brewing Company. It used to be called the Corner Cafe. And Matt Webster, who was the owner of that at the time, of the, the brew side of it, allowed us to come in and copy his system piece by piece. His whole thing, there was no breweries down here. He thought, hey, more the merrier, right? Neither one of us are packaging. Hey, if we get craft beer to be a bigger thing down here, all of us are gonna gonna succeed. So Matt was was really, really helpful in helping us kind of do what he was doing. And then the beers that we were kicking out early on were terrible. I mean, terrible. Under attenuated, diacetyl, DMS. We didn't know what any of these things really were. Mm -hmm. We were learning them as we tried something and went, oh, well, that's sour. What happened? And we'd go back and we'd learn about it. And, oh, we didn't even know how to clean our heat exchanger properly. Oh, well, I guess we have to go and learn how to do that. So there was a lot of that. I, I will say that the fans early on were the craft beer people. I, I misspoke a little bit earlier on because I said that Cigar City wasn't around yet. They absolutely were still kind of in their infancy, probably in their first year or so. Because there was a lot of fervency around first bottles that were coming out and were driving across state and getting them and trading them for their firstborn child and all the kind of stuff that happened in that whale watch stuff of craft beer at that time and this. I think the fans, the local craft crowd, which was so small, was just so excited to have a brewery around that they liked everything we did. Well, you kind of take yeah. advantage, I think, too, in the beginning of, of having an industry that without being rude, doesn't know any better too, right? Like, they're like, oh, that is interesting. I don't know why. It kind of dries off on my palate. I'm like, yeah, because there's lactic acid in it. They didn't, they didn't know that, right? It just tastes fun and, and whatever. But we didn't get that advantage. So we had some of those mistakes and just got eviscerated by it. People would, I mean, it beat me to death. I, I think a lot of what happened was people really wanted their own cult brewery mm. in their hometown. And I think, honestly, it was, we want beers that we can trade. We want beers that 
that are valuable to us. And I think that happened very early on. It might not have been the first week, right? But I think as we first did our first bottlings and I got a beer gun, I'm literally bottling maple bacon coffee porter in the back sink two hours before the release. Kind really? Of stuff. It was just insane. I think we got a lot of, we got a pass because a lot of people really wanted it to be good. And they wanted to go on Beer Advocate and give us a five because that meant that their trade value would go up. And it's not that those beers didn't have something to them. They were over the top play. But the first version of Floridian, which is one of the flagship beers of Funky Buddha to this day, was basically a creamsicle. It was a Hefeweizen with orange and vanilla. I remember I could still taste it on my tongue. It was just under attenuated, over sweet, just bad. We evolved and became brewers and actually knew what we were doing. We we had that location for three and a half years. At least that's before the big brewery opened up. They kept it a little bit longer after that. But we ended up making some pretty damn good beer eventually. But we had to learn what the hell we were doing. Hefeweizen is one of those weird styles that everybody likes to lean on as their sort of go-to. It's an ale. Obviously, you can ferment it easier. It's wheat. And so as long as you don't overdo it in the mash bill, it's that quote unquote easy to make. And of course, someone's going to eviscerate me that it's hard for them. But what they forget is that yeast is notoriously tricky as shit. And so until you figure it out, you get esters are all over the place, like batch to batch, it's never the same. And so, yeah, it's a, it can be a challenging style to play with as your flagship in the beginning. For sure. And just uh, the generations of yeast and how that changes. I mean, we had no idea. We didn't have a lab. We weren't taking cell counts. I was using a, a plastic scoop and scooping yeast into an Arizona iced tea one liter jug with a funnel to hold yeast to pitch into my next batch. For like a day or two and then pitch it in? I mean, that, that's how we had to do things because we didn't have any other way to do it. Yeah. I was the owner and I had hired a brewer for a few of them throughout the different years. And so one of the questions I had for you, I was kind of curious, is how did that relationship work with you and Ryan as... You know, you're the, I guess, essentially the workhorse and the guy who is doing some of the thinking. But did he, he called himself head brewer and he called himself brewmaster a few times, some different things I could find. But anyways, how did that relationship go? And did you guys ever butt heads artistically? I'm just curious. We got along really well thematically of what we were trying to accomplish. Because what Ryan, and I, it was probably Ryan that, that had this idea, was that we would sit around and have a dogfish head beer that had 47 different ingredients. In it. And we'd say, well, I can't really taste that one ingredient. Shouldn't we be able to taste that ingredient if we said it was in the bottle? Mm -hmm. And that sparked peanut butter and jelly and maple bacon coffee and apple pie and all this kind of stuff. The answer was just use more of it. Yeah. Really is the answer. Everyone's, how do you do this? It's not magic. It, just use more of that ingredient and you're going to have that beer taste that way. That was the philosophy and we both were really into food and it was the over the top flavors that we were into. So we were kind of aligned when it came to that. There is no marriage like that that happens over time that dissolves the way ours did. And I left well before the brewery really took off and started doing it. It's not like I, I just, you know, got burnt out or something. We were not getting along. A lot of it was me <laughs> not being open to criticism or not being willing to ask for the things that I needed. I was kind of tough to deal with at that time. I was a angry punk kid. I probably still am to some degree. But the idea of the head brewer versus the, the workhorse brewer, we agreed to disagree on how that all worked out and how that was. He was very involved in recipe formulation, and I did some of that as well. We would probably disagree on how much I did. Uh, <laughs> but I was the one that was doing batches. And I felt like when you, you were owner of the brewery, did you brew as well? I did here and there. So lots of, especially if they went on vacation, I would always brew. And then there would be a period of time between brewers where I would brew. Uh, and then the last 
two and a half years, I did it exclusively. But as a rule, I'm not a great brewer for a variety of reasons, uh, but I can do it. But doing what you've, what you've done, you understand what I'm saying when I say this. The person that's functioning that recipe on a daily basis is making constant tweaks. They're mm-hmm. moving things around. They're making decisions. They're doing things to make that beer better, independent of what that recipe was. And my frustration was always like, I didn't feel like I got the credit, for the lack of a better term, not from like the publication. I didn't. I don't care what was published somewhere, but from the internal staff of who we were, for all the work I did to craft those recipes and make them better every time I did, right? Independent of who did the recipe. That's, I think, where my biggest frustration came in that I never really communicated accurately because I was angry and frustrated. And if I had been able to bridge those gaps, things might have changed and turned out differently. But that was, I think, really where it came to. Years later, I actually ran into Ryan and we hadn't talked for years and we were having a conversation with some of the people and Ryan pointed me and said, oh, that was Kevin. He was our first head brewer. And that was just a really nice thing that Ryan said. He might not even remember to say it. He might have just said it, not even really thinking about what he was saying. But felt really good to me that I had a little acknowledgement because in some ways the guy was, we were contemporaries age-wise, but he also kind of like my dad, right? Like he gave me my mm. first job in the industry and I, and I wanted to make him proud. Uh, there, there was always a, an interesting dynamic with that, with that relationship. Yeah, no, there usually is. I, I remember when my brewer would go on vacation I would actually sit him down before and be like, okay, so I'm going to brew while you're gone. What have you changed from the recipe I handed you when you started? Because I know it's not the same. I forgot where we, you know, mash temp was slightly different or runoff time, whatever. I can see how that's a challenge sometimes. How does system work? You brewed on this thing for almost three years on this nano system? Yeah, three and a half years by by my best calculations. It was a just a hot liquor tank. It was combo mash uh, lauder and then a brew kettle slash whirlpool. We did our best to try to put a hose in there to whirlpool the best we could. Hmm. Three Blickman uh, fermenters with conical. He always said it was a barrel and a half system. It really wasn't a barrel and a half. They were 55 gallon scale drums. We never netted more than one barrel or more than really? know, seven or six, you know, six slims, maybe seven slims, maybe out of a, out of a batch because of you know, losses and things of that nature. But, and headspace in the fermenters, I want to say there were 42 gallon Blickman fermenters, but you have to have headspace in there, right? So yeah, we would brew a batch of beer. We had Coke fridges that we had purchased from convenience stores or what, whatnot and refitted with a temperature, external temperature control so that we could, we could have the temperature be where we needed it to be. The, the fermenters came apart with a band in the middle. So when you broke them down, there was no CIP system. You literally would break the fermenter down, take the top off, flip it upside down, scrub it out. Now uh, that I have not seen. That's interesting. Yeah, the, it was uh, it was Cornelius kegs filled with, you know, with a rubber hose out of the, the racking arm uh, on the thing and then force carbonated. We used to use the little carb stones off of the Cornelius keg connections until those got clogged and didn't really work. So we just used top pressure to carbonate everything. And that's how we did it. I, I ended up having an assistant brewer named Morgan Pierce who took over for me and worked with me for a couple of years near the end and then took over for me when I went to the big brewery that did a lot of those things. But other than that, it was really, not only was I brewing at that time, but I was also, for the first couple of years, I actually didn't get paid. <laughs> I, I did it kind of because I wanted to learn and I volunteered and I bartended at night. So I was a bartender from whatever, six o'clock five six o'clock till two o'clock in the morning then i would get to the brewery around 10 11 o'clock i'd do a batch of beer and then i'd run home take a shower and go back to work that's a long day yeah there was a long one so i think i want to say we were brewing you know, a couple times a week on average or at least once a week on average twice a week on average with the turnaround time of the, the fermenters 
but some of that's a little bit fuzzy to me. All right. Well, since you got to experience that at that level, this is one of those things that's constantly been an issue in our industry is everyone, there's still, there are websites and Facebook groups devoted to starting with the one to two barrel system and whether that's a viable option. Obviously, you didn't necessarily see the books, but could you imagine that that was remotely profitable on the production and beer side? I don't think it was, and I never saw the books, so I had nothing to do with that. But we were still a, a open mic crowd. We were still doing teas. We were still doing tons of other craft beers and bottles and on draft. We only had five or six, maybe up to eight, ten beers of our own on draft. And then we had another ten other crafts from all over the country, all, all over the world. And we were still booking comedy shows and music events and just everything you could think of. So the brewery certainly was not a profitable entity at that time from the outside looking in. And the spot went on to become a different brewery for a while and get sold afterwards. I, I don't think so. I don't think you can hire somebody that's talented and really knows their stuff. There's just not enough money to be made in the margins for something like that. If you're going to get a good brewer, I mean, I worked for free for a year or so. Right. And then after I was getting paid a very small amount, I was thankful when I got it because once again, I was getting the experience. I don't think I wasn't getting paid because because <laughs> there was greed involved. I think it was like, well, there's no money to be made here. This is an experiment. Let's see where it goes. I can imagine a way to do it. And when I recommend to people that, first of all, when people ask me, uh, I'm opening a brewery, what should I do? First, I say, stop thinking about that and don't. <laughs> If they come back and ask another question, I say, well, this is what you're going to want to do. And I think there is some profitability to be made on site only consumption in a tap room with a food option. But that brew house size and the, the manpower it needs to run that, that's a razor thin platform you've got to walk on to not fall on your ass. Yeah, no, I agree. Even if you are profitable, again, it only takes one thing. So the pump goes out, you don't have the money to fix it. Now what do you do? And so you, I think in, in some ways that's you see that a lot. And I even saw that at the 15 barrel size in our brewery that when one thing would go out, if you couldn't replace it or you're waiting until the check from the distributor and it just, there's just not enough money floating around. And the answer is always, we'll bring on an investor or bring on a bank loan. But that, in my opinion, destroys the entire return on equity thing. And so it I just, either way, don't fucking do it. <laughs> okay, so here's here's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on this show, not just to talk about what you're doing now in your brewery, because I'm enamored by that style of beer, but the story of Funky Buddha is quite literally, it's lore in the industry. You start with a one and a half barrel system, you brew on it for three years, you go to 30 barrels, you brew on it for three years, and you sell for $80 million. It's fucking ridiculous and it doesn't happen anymore but it did there but so even from going from a barrel and a half to going to a 30 barrel was a creveller system even that i can't get my head around how what was it like at that moment was ryan just being bombarded with so much money was it so much fame like what what made you guys think dude this has got to go 30 barrels we're about to be I think in 2018, you did 40,000 barrels. I mean, it worked, it grew, but how did he know at the time? Like, what was the logic? He was a very ambitious and still is a very ambitious person, really smart business person, and saw the opportunity to grow significantly. And I'm sure that the those benchmarks were changed along the way, right? It wasn't like, oh, we're going to open this thing, and then in three and a half years, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. But he saw very early on that there was something there. It was the craft beer community. It wasn't the local community. There was no one coming to our lounge drinking our beer. There were locals and kids. We didn't get random passerbys coming and go, man, we hear so much stuff about this beer. <laughs> it was beer advocate and right beer. It was 
we at one point had three of the top four porters in the world on beer app. That's crazy. We at one point had two of the top five brown ales in the world on beer app. And when we did bottling runs or growlers or whatever, people were trading these and selling them. We'd sell a bottle for 20 bucks and it would be on eBay for $200. Hmm. And we'd go to beer fest and the line, it would be a sellout at the freaking beer line. And we'd, we'd open a tap for a five gallon keg. And a few minutes later, we'd close it. It would be empty. We never closed the tap because we were doing these over the top styles. I think once that became obvious of there was this groundswell of interest for it, that's when he started looking into it and looking into what the next step was going to be. And I wasn't involved in a lot of that stuff. I was working at night bartending and brewing the beer and I would hear, Hey, we're looking in Oakland park, Florida. I didn't even know what Oakland park was. <laughs> we're doing this, we're doing that. We're looking at this system. And I, and I got a chance to, give some comments and think a little bit about this, but it definitely wasn't my place at the time to, to chime in, but, you know, brought in some investors to, to, to foot that bill and, and buy that big system. And we opened that facility. I was the only employee. It was a 15,000 square foot, it's a 15,000 square foot facility. And there was, it was me. That's I, crazy. I grained out, I cleaned the brew house, I cleaned the fermenter, I sanitized the fermenter, I transferred the beer in, I transferred the beer to the bright tank, I kegged the beer, I organized the walk-in. I mean, this was not a long, long time, right? I was I was only there really for the, the pre-open period and only a couple months after the actual open. It was it was pretty daunting. To a certain degree, I was in over my head. I'd never brewed on a, on a commercial brewing system before. That's a lot of beer to be made by one guy, for sure. And just managing the system. In some ways, it's easier. And then obviously, in some ways, it's much harder to. And just it takes forever just with the transferring and cleaning and all that stuff. Just It does take three times as long to clean a bigger tank sometimes. So I was lucky. They brought in a consultant, uh, Matt Manthe, who is now my partner at Audrey Wiley. Oh, yeah. I wonder why I'd recognize the name. Yeah. So he was, he was our consultant for Open the Brewery. He was... A mentor and once again a, con- a contemporary of mine that was also a mentor of mine right who really taught me because he went to brewing school in germany he was a head brewer at thomas creek he knew beer right he knew how to function a big brew house so he was one that really taught me so much about what i needed to do so that those first batches that we made on that big brew system on that Crevella 30 barrel were good I- i'm very proud of the first beers that we put out on that system and we had been working on those recipes for a long time but you know how it is you go from one barrel homebrew setup the same beer and try to brew it on a 30 barrel three vessel system well that was going to be my next question is how did that scale go most of the time when when i have done it i have hit close but i've missed more often than i've hit i'm just trying to jump that high it's so long ago it's really hard for me to remember you know what was my my OG on this batch versus that one? It's really, really tough for me to remember some of those days. And some of them were bad days. I mean, there's a reason why I left <laughs> when I did. It wasn't because things were going peachy for me. It was overwhelming. It was hard to do. And I, I did feel like it was all on, on me to do. Yeah, I think, the, I think the translation went pretty well. We had one batch that got a little bit funky early on, uh, one of our, our launch batches that just didn't turn out the way we wanted it, wanted it to. But other than that, I was pretty proud of the beers that we launched with. And you know, not too much later, they were packaging and getting a bottling line in and, and really cranking stuff out in a local grocery store. Which I think was kind of the point. Well, let's take a quick break. And when I come back, I want to hear about sort of your take on what happened with Funky Buddha after that up to now, but then really dive into what you, you did next. So I know you worked at another brewery between the one you're at now. And I think those stories are going to be interesting to you. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing those. So let's take a quick break. So hey, where are you kids buying your grains? 
You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us, Kevin. So, again, just quick quick opinion from your perspective with the, the Funky Buddha story. And like I said, they went basically in seven years, they created a valuation of $80 million, which I can honestly tell you in my personal opinion. Well, I think it's clear uh, Constellation has even made that, that they overpaid and they were not able to capitalize on some of the growth they thought was coming. But just curious, like when you left, could you see that trajectory? And do you now looking back wish that you'd found a way to stay? Would that have been a a future that you you would have been comfortable in or not? Are you glad that you didn't? I I think overall, I'm glad I didn't. You can always see a branching reality where I would have went down that road. Did I see it coming that way when I left, when I told, I walked into the office and Ryan ended up bringing out not just some investors, but his partner ended up being his brother, Casey, uh, down the road. Their partner, Jim Bass, was long gone by this time. When I walked into their office and said, hey, guys, I'm I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. And, you know, gave him a month notice or whatever it was to, to put together someone to replace me. I said, you guys are going to be dogfish. I, I believe that. I believe you've got, you've got the drive to do this. You've got the idea to do it. The, the groundswell of the support for this brand is so strong. You guys are going to do it. But I don't see myself here. I'm, I'm not in this brewery at all. Because when I started, I literally put the floorboards in in the <laughs> new brewery. I helped build the bar. Right. I did everything at that original brewery. And I felt like in some ways it was mine, even though I wasn't an owner. I really took ownership of it. By the time the big brewery opened up, I just felt like I was just a drone doing the job. There was no real passion in that for me. I was proud of what I was doing, what I was learning. And the skills I've got there are were invaluable. They're the reason why I have a career now. So I'm really appreciative of that. But there, I was never going to be a voice, a real voice in that brewery. My opinions were really, I never felt my opinions really were going to matter, even though I was there from the ground from the, from the first day. So that's where I think the disconnect really happened. Do I wish I could have related that to them in an adult manner and asked for the things that I wanted? Be more a part of these conversations, tell them that I have a skill set. I mean, I have managed restaurants before that. I had management skills. I, I, I had the, the, the foundation to do what I'm doing now, which is running breweries. Do I wish I would have had those kind of conversations? Absolutely. If not just to get that out in the air and then to say, yeah, we don't see you in that way. And there's no way that we would ever let you do that. Okay. Well then we can part way. I wish I would have done that. But what I ended up doing ended up working more for me in my style and the kind of way that I like to work. People have joked many times over the years, oh, if you just would have stuck it out a little bit longer, you would have got a big paycheck. I don't think I would have gotten a big paycheck. <laughs> I wasn't an owner. I didn't own that place. I didn't put my money down in that. But I would have been a brewer and I would have had some more prestige. Listen, when I when I used to walk into a beer fest, people used to be like, oh, Kevin, good to see you. 
And now I walk in, no one gives a shit who I am because I'm just the guy that makes the Belgian beer. I'm not the darling of the party anymore. That was nice. But other than that, uh, I'm happy where I, where I moved on to. So it, if this show's about anything, it's about how to start a brewery the right way by learning from the wrong way, I guess is a good way of saying it. So I am curious since there's still people I talk to to this day and I do some accidental consulting constantly that still think they're going to effectively repeat the Funky Brewer story. And if you were to sit down right now with what you know now, two breweries later, you know, much more behind the scenes and behind the helm of the one you're in now – if we were to say, let's go start in 2022 a hype brewery that can grow, let's say even half that quickly, but can, you know, in, in 10 years can become a, an $80 million going concern. How could you do it? Is it possible? I don't think it is possible. I think that the big companies have seen what the return on that investment is. Listen, we also just saw just recently Cigar City sold to Monster mm -hmm. and now there's rumors that Monster's going to move, which was Constellation. It's a whole thing. And Cigar City, a little bit longer, longer sell cycle on that. But they also sold to Canarchy or combined with Canarchy years. I think what it comes down to the hype brewery aspect is that there are tons of them. And there's tons of them in the local Florida market that are still putting their cans online and selling out and out. And when you go into some of the places in the Uber Craft beer shops, people are talking about these beers with the same reverence they were talking about no crust PB and J beer X amount of years ago. And I always look at that and go, man, this is so bizarre. It's so weird to see that happen with hazy IPAs or, ke or uh, smoothie sours or what have you. But I think that business model now is so internal in keeping things small and keeping things with hype because it got to a point where maple bacon coffee porter, there's a reason why that place sold for $80 million. One of the reasons is because of that. Hmm. But stop. The second that beer hit a, a, a liquor store shelf no one gave a shit anymore yeah they once lost, it was easy to get they lost all that street cred so i think all those breweries doing that i don't think they they have that aspiration i think they saw what happened to those hype breweries that kind of overextended themselves and and went into the the more mainstream public and said well we don't want to do that we're, we're probably a little scared to do that it takes a lot of work to do that you got to put in a freaking rotary bottling line to do that we can just keep selling this beer out of this place and we get all the profit so I think that's that's where those breweries are doing now. If Funky Buddha opened up today, that's what I think they'd be doing, is following that that game plan. Other than that, I mean, one in a million chance for someone to have something like that happen again, catch the public consciousness, business decides to overpay for you. I mean, that's a, that's a tall order. That's a lot of stars have to align. No, I agree. I think it's it's one of those sad things that just, it's a lore that won't go away, and and it, it happened too many times. But not only I think will the big guys not pay for it, I just don't think that the consumer is almost just exhausted, where they just they don't want to get behind it the same way that they did. They'll still wait in lines, but you're just not seeing. We're not seeing the length of lines and the the prices have you know stagnated a little bit. Chef sits on shelves longer than it used to. That kind of thing. It's all about now super serving your hardcore fans. That's what it all comes down to, is super serving your heart. It's the same thing with streaming services, Netflix. It's not about getting 100 million people or 10 million people to watch your thing. It's about getting 500,000 people to just tweet about it in, in social media, TikTok. I don't know. I'm not into it. I'm old. But you seem like you'd be a TikToker. I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> but anyway, that's what it's all about. So I think that's what the breweries are now realizing, is that as good as Cigar City is, as good as Funky Buddha has been, as good as some of these beers are, they're not necessarily going to become the biggest beer in Hoboken, New Jersey, if they're from Florida, because they've got their own look. 
And the craft sets in my neck of the woods, they're not growing, they're shrinking. And our Publix, our, our big supermarket chain down here, the craft sets shrunk. They didn't expand mm-hmm. in this last time. So you have more and more large companies buying these breweries and getting this foothold of four SKUs and a cooler, more and more breweries trying to get into those those the, that shrinking space. I mean, it's a different world. I, I said this to uh, my head brewer recently, is that we're living through a watershed moment in craft beer, and we know it, but I don't, I don't think we know to what magnitude. I think 10 years from now, everyone's going to look at it and go, whoa, that bubble freaking burst. It burst kind of slowly, but it burst. I think the beginning that's going to happen literally kind of right now throughout the next year or two years, but it's weird. And, and now, now we're playing crystal ball now, but I, I don't foresee an immediate 20% correction. I, it's, and it's weird because you still get new openings. And so I've said this a few times on the show, but if you look at the Brewer Association numbers from July to July 2020 to 2021, there's a net gain in breweries in the United States. Like you can't write that down and make up a storyline, fiction or otherwise, that makes any fucking sense as to how we gained breweries during the worst pandemic. It's because you don't have to be intelligent to open a brewery, apparently. Sorry, guys that are listening, but you don't. Kevin, exception. No, no, it's all, it's all passion, man. People really like this stuff, and they see the hype out there, and they see the, they see the top end of the breweries that they want to be, and they don't see the breweries that they don't want to be that are struggling and selling and... Rob and Peter to pay Paul and, and desperately giving kegs away to a local bar so they can get on that draft line. I have conversations on a regular basis with people in my company and in others, and they'll, they'll make a flipping statement going, yeah, these guys are over here doing so well. Like, you don't know how well they're doing. Have you gone to their QuickBooks recently? We have no idea. You might see a lot of tap handles out there, but you don't know. You don't know if they're yeah. hemorrhaging me every day. And a lot of them are. We just don't know. They got deep pockets. They've got investors. They bring on new people. My new reply to the next person that tells me how many barrels they did is, uh, "How much free cash flow did you put in your pocket in the last quarter?" Like from now on, I don't, I don't want to hear your barrel numbers ever again, and don't ever tell me that because this is the only industry that I have. You know, we all have friends all over. The only industry I know of where people never talk about profitability in actual dollars. They're profitable. They're doing well. But they won't tell you how or how much. Because it's like a dirty word. It's almost like when you start talking about profitability that that you've crossed over to be some kind of corporate monster. Mm-hmm. And one of the major things I've learned in this industry is that if we can't find a way to be profitable and be profitable on our own terms and be profitable to growth or get to a stagnation point where we're where we need to be and then say, oh, we're going to invest $1.3 million to get to the next point where we're going to be profitable. If we can't have these conversations, we can't just talk about how great the beer is all the time. No one cares. Right? They care less than they used to, for sure. Yeah, our, our fans care, but the person down the street that doesn't know anything about you does not care that you say your beer's really, really good. Unless you can get them to give you money for it, it's an irrelevant conversation anyways. Yeah. I don't care if they like it, if they don't pay you for it, that doesn't help. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you left Funky Buddha and you go to a new scrappy startup named Do South. Uh, I know why you left Funky, but what made you choose them? So Mike Hawker and Jody Hawker, who are the, are the primary owners of the, of the business, I had befriended them when they moved down from, I believe, in South Carolina and just started hanging out in the brew scene in the same bars that I was in. And they wanted to open a brewery. And actually, he offered me a position before Funky Buddha was even going to do their big production facility. He had said, hey, listen, you're brewing down here. I think you got some talent. I, I you know, we get along pretty well. He offered me a position. I ended up declining it because I... 
I saw the growth of Funky and thought I could stay there and do well with it. We just kept close. We, we were friends, you know, long story short. And when I was really unhappy on my day to day at Funky Buddha, he was kind of like, hey, you can come over and work for me. Hmm. I need some help. I'll pay you more. <laughs> you'll work less hours and you, you'll have some support and, you know, you'll be in a better work environment. You'll be a happier person. I don't want to, I'm not going to bury that lead. So you got more money to leave and go work on this new 20 barrel system than you were working on this 30 barrel huge system for a brewery that was growing that quickly. But you have to remember, Do South came before Funky as far as their production system. So they were already doing that. We weren't packaging at that time, but in the very beginning, but it was, they were doing it, doing pretty well. But yeah, I, I got, I got paid more and work less hours and work closer to home and all that kind of stuff. Now at this exact time, my, what became my partners were planning to open barrel amongst brewing. At the same time I was talking with them, I also had a lead for a brewery in Virginia. I had a couple other options. There was a couple, there was a couple things that were on my plate that I was looking at. I went to my friends, my good friends that were gonna, that wanted to talk about getting me ownership in the brewery and said, hey, when is this, this Belgian brewery gonna happen? And they said, listen, man, we're, we're a couple years away. I wish I could put you on the payroll now and just have you fast track everything and work on it every day, but we can't do it. So you're gonna have to bide your time. So I went to Mike and I said, Mike, I'm probably going to do this this Belgian brewery thing at some point because they're going to give me ownership and I'm going to be the head brewer and I'm going to be the main shop caller when it comes to that. Because Mike Hawker was the head brewer of DuSap, mm-hmm. so his recipes. He didn't brew on a regular basis, but he was the head brewer. And I knew that I was never going to be that, right? I told him, hey, I, I want to do this, but I, I also would love to come work for you. And he said, fine, if you don't like it in a year and a half, Go leave, do your thing. In that time, we'll get some good work out of you. You'll help us with our procedures. You'll make us a little bit better. And if you love it, you'll stay. It's a mutually beneficial situation. So when he told me that, I said, okay, man, I'm all in. So I went and put my my notice in and I went to work for Due South. And I I learned so much because I was more involved in the day-to-day stuff. I was more involved in talking about distribution. I was more involved in a lot of different aspects of that business. And I got to see a lot of interesting gross things, getting the canning line and, and doing some of the other things that ended up happening. When I was looking at their website, shortly after you started, there was a Kevin's Bacon beer. Is that you? <laughs> that that was not my idea. <laughs> they named it after you? <laughs> yeah. Listen, unfortunately, there was a time when I had a little minor celebrity in the local community because people saw me at Beer Fest and knew that I had something to do with that brewery. So for about 10 minutes after I left, people cared about me. I think that was kind of kind of capitalized on that that kind of idea. But we did some of the culinary stuff. I did an um, orange maple imperial caramel cream. I did some of the stuff that we had been successful with at Funky. And I think we did a good version of it. But that was the first thing I learned. It was a really, really hard lesson. If you don't start with hype, can't get hype. Mm. It doesn't matter if the beers taste exactly the same. It doesn't matter if People have a preconceived notion in that craft beer community of what a brewery is. And once they have that preconceived notion, nothing about what you do really is going to sway there. And that was definitely my experience in Do South. I think they made good beer beforehand. I selfishly think I helped them make better beer <laughs> and more clean, consistent beer. And I still would hear negative comments about beers that happened a year before I was there. I'm the poster child for that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and and that, that was a real wake. Yeah, it's hard. Like, there were actually two different times that I almost renamed and rebranded the brewery completely. But I realized that the consumer would see right through it and know I was still involved. And, it, and I am or was, however you want to look at it, Texas' most hated brewery owner. And so I, it was needed to get me out of the way. 
But yeah, it was the same thing. You can just see it where people, once they have a preconceived notion of what you do and who you are, they can drink a good beer and be like, yeah, but it's still, it's theirs. Like they don't care. It's weird. But so it's funny to me that bacon beer was your legacy though. I mean, I'm not going to forget that. So <laughs> what, what, what struck you as different? So this is always an interesting thing for me. If you, you went from a one system to another and so immediately and they're both, you know, 30 to 20 isn't dramatically different, but were there production characteristics between the two that you were like, man, I, that system was so much better, or I wish that we had had this, or when I get my brewery, I'm going to make sure we always have this. Like Both of the systems I first worked on sucked. Really? The Creveller system was not designed very well, in my opinion. I didn't enjoy brewing on it. I, it was very, very manual. It had a lot, of, I mean, it's been so long, but there, there were a lot of inefficiencies in that system that I did not really enjoy working on. It was my first brew system. I should have loved every aspect of it. And I just wasn't a huge fan. It was a, uh, a steam system. Then I went over to a direct fire system with premier system, which was a fine little workout. It was a workhorse system. But when I started there, there were no rakes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So now I'm, I'm using a paddle, an oar to, to make 20 fucking right? barrels. Well, this was 15, but still. Jeez. So there were, there were just some shared piping, so you couldn't see IP one side while you were brewing another side. It didn't boil really well. It only rolled a tiny little bit. You could see a, a slight rolling boil. So if you're looking for that nice Maillard reaction or caramelization, you're not getting it out of those beers. Yeah, there were definitely some, some things about both those systems I did not love. I was happy to be brewing on them because I was happy to be brewing and learning two different systems right back to back, learning these systems. And I always thought this is making me more valuable for the future because I'll, I'll know what not to do next time. Right. Yeah. That's the whole purpose of this, <laughs> this podcast in some ways. I found a lot of the processes and things like that at Do South were difficult because they were conceived by a person who had never opened a brewery before. Mm-hmm. I found the stuff at Ibuda difficult because it was conceived by a person who never opened a brewery. <laughs> right. There's uh, a theme here. With, yeah, there was consultants involved, at least in Funky, and we got a little bit closer to where we had. But yeah, at Do South, we had one floor drain. We, our floors weren't pitched, right? They were just concrete floors with floor drain cut in them. There were just a lot of little things that had to happen because the thing was started on a shoestring budget. There was not $1.5 million to put in that brewery when it opened up. Right. And it, we've got to do a lot with a little. That also helped because then when you actually have the budget to put a brewery together, you get more out of what that budget is. So I learned a lot of that too. Uh, yeah. So is there anything in particular that you learned brewing there that you, you've taken through your career to this day? It, it really hammered home process to me because when I started doing stuff at Funky, I was being I was either self-taught or being taught by someone who studied brewing in Germany, right? Who was very, very adamant about doing things the right way. And I just assumed everyone did everything the right way. <laughs> I assumed all these pitched under ideal circumstances. I assumed all these different things. And then when I went and saw what the process was to do south, I mean, it wasn't deplorable, but it was first time I ever saw a batch brewed. There was a Cornelius keg full of yeast and the manway was open and they were pouring the yeast into the manway. And I don't, I can't tell you how many points that that could be tainted. And wow, it, it was horrifying to me. Very quickly, we came up with a way to pitch yeast in line during the transfer and under better conditions. It's already in a keg. (laughs) But that is how he learned from Mm. somebody else, right? So that's the thing. The thing that I learned that helped me the most, because there's there's a billion little ones, is that everybody thinks the thing they do is because they learned it from somebody who thought what they were doing was right. 
busting that preconceived notion and saying, oh, wait, what am I doing that's just ridiculous that another brewer would look at and say, I can't believe you do that. That was, it was kind of putting, it was a way to put the microscope back on yourself and say, what don't I know? It's a good lesson. Not, yeah. And not to just like dismiss anybody when they say, oh, you know, sometimes I do a 120 minute boil. Okay, why? I, I might say, well, that's not necessary, but why? Maybe you you have something that I don't have, a piece of knowledge. And I think too often, even home brewers <laughs> that go from zero to 60 for some reason, think they have all the answers. And they're arrogant about it in many cases, which is really weird. Very arrogant about it. And I, I know I've, I've been that person before. There's no doubt that I have been. But trying to, to pull some of that back, I think, has been helpful. So I have two big careers that kind of span, and now I'm into my third. But my first was uh, the fitness industry. And I can tell you that personal trainers are the exact same. Like As soon as they come out of a four-day, four weekend-long certification class... They will just berate you that you don't know which direction the tricep muscle fires, as if it has anything to do with weight loss, anyways. And like, but it's the same thing. They're just arrogant and shitty and condescending. And a lot of home brewers are the same way once they go pro, present company excluded, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, so you worked there for a while. I did have one question. I don't know if you know the answer to this. If Mike ever returns my now four requests for an interview, I will ask, ask him. But when they first opened, Due South was only charging $4 a beer out of their tasting room. Was that a long-term thing? Do you know if they raised the price or were they still charging that when you were there? I really didn't have a lot to do with the tap room. I did help out in there a few times, but I couldn't tell you the prices of them. Yeah, I just thought Mike, that was amazingly low. So. Mike, listen, Mike, this is, I hope this doesn't sound derogatory. He's a good old boy from South Carolina, right? He wanted to have a brewery making straightforward. His idea of really good craft beer was making a good IPA. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to make culinary beers like Funky Buddha. He had no interest in that. He had no interest in doing Belgians. He, had, he wanted to make the beer he liked. Mm-hmm. And he didn't he fall in love with all craft beer. He fell in love with like four or five. And he wanted to make those because he was a home brewer and, and, and got good response from his friends and stuff when he made the beers. So I think he wanted to make straightforward, good beers, sell them for a good price in kind of a, a blue collar area, which is Boynton Beach in a warehouse that was kind of dirty and kind of run down and kind of, you know, it was a, it's a working class kind of outfit. And I think he wanted to have beers that people could come in and just, you know, get introduced to craft beer for the first time and say, this isn't pretentious. This is just a beer, but it's, it's a local beer. And I love it. Yeah. Well, yeah, they didn't, I think they, after you left a couple of years later, they put in an air conditioned tasting room that didn't have an air conditioned tasting room to begin with. In Florida, they had a little tiny room that had some AC in it, but it was small and the AC didn't work all that well. But yeah, that, the aesthetics of something had nothing to do with what his plan was. His plan was to make beer, sell it to bars and restaurants, and be one of the first adopters down here and, and really blow it up. And they were the, the, the grandfather of production brewing in South Florida. When they closed, it was a big thing. My current head brewer and podcast partner, uh, Joel Codner, he worked there with me. I trained him on on that brew house. My other podcast co-host and one of my best friends, Mike Urevich, who works at Copper Point Brewing, he worked there in the marketing department. When that place closed, we were like, man, this is an institution. This is really, really scary in some ways and depressing in other ways. It was an odd thing when they when they decided to, to fold up the fold up fold up the doors, close up the doors, fold up something else. <laughs> fold up the ledger. I don't know, maybe. But... <laughs> Yeah, so that was only, what, four months, five months ago, maybe, when they announced it. So obviously, you weren't there in the end. But I, I am curious, and let's just, you know, 
throw this out there that, that, that I don't know if you're talking here the same things, but everybody I talk to now is sort of saying that the evolution of the crapper industry that we to be successful, we've got to go back home. Like it's all tasting room sales. And you alluded to that a little bit with the hype guys that the distribution model is effectively dead, particularly multi-state, which I also learned the hard way. But they sort of did that, right? They were a production brewery. They opened an air-conditioned tasting room for the first time in 2018. They they invested in on-site sales, on-site consumption, and connecting with the consumer over the bar. And we're closed three years later, like from the outside, obviously looking in. Do you have any insights as to why it didn't work for them, even though everyone's saying it's going to work for us today? They also had a giant warehouse. I mean, I think at the, at the end, they had probably 30,000 square feet. Jeez. They, it might not be that much, but I, I believe when we, when I was there, it was 10 to 15,000 and they expanded it significantly. They got the entire building next door. You can't be all things to all people. And I think what happened when, with my time there and just my perspective of it is that trying to be the local guys and also trying to attack draft handle lines at concert venues and also trying to be in public and also trying to be this. They weren't just trying to do one thing and do it this one way. They were trying to do all these things. And it's hard to keep sales reps and it's hard to keep sales reps that are good as they find different positions. And if you don't have a sales rep out in the market, you're going to die <laughs> uh, yeah. because you're someone out there poaching your lines. The, the industry is really competitive down here. I think there's a lot of reasons why it could have happened, but if I could go back and be a consultant there and, and kind of go back to those roots and say, what would my focus have been? It would have been pushing two brands, their IPA and their caramel cream ale and make them ubiquitous and do the specialty stuff in the tap room, shrink the business down a little bit as far as your, your square footage in your space, get a little bit leaner and really push the brands that everybody knows as an institution. And I think they might've tried all that, by the way. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not a genius. Maybe they tried every bit of that and it didn't work, but I felt like in some ways it got a little scattershot with them and too many new brands and that's not enough to support that size of a brewery. If it was a brew pub, they had tons of fans. They had tons of people that are mourning the loss of that place. Yeah, they announced, you know, most guys are nowadays just sort of like wrapping up and maybe they do an Instagram post and they just aren't open the next day and then some people don't even do that, but... They announced it at least a month in advance and gave everybody time to come say goodbye. And it was clear that they had a fan base that they were trying to you know, stay connected to. And it sounds like they're not entirely gone either. They just closed the tasting room, but they had looked at potentially selling the brand or whatever. So who knows like what pops up where. But I've seen stranger things happen. So we'll see. Well, so we're just about caught up to the point where we can talk about what you are doing now. And so... Let me go take a quick break and uh, chug some water real quick, and I'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. 
All right, so welcome back again. Uh, we've got, I think, what, two more sections to go through here, but this is the one where I really want to hear what you're doing now, particularly because the experience that you had to get to this point means that once the, the boys with the money got their Belgian stuff together, you were able to build something from scratch from your brain that was going to work in the way that you needed it to work. How'd that go? 2014, is that when you started? Yeah, so I came on board in 2014, and the brewery didn't open officially. We didn't serve our first customer until 2015. I believe it was March, uh, around that time. I got really lucky. I have three partners. They were all friends of mine before we started working together. Two of them have hard microbiology backgrounds. They're radiologists. They, they're happy to study yeast and learn absolutely everything. They're brilliant, intelligent people. Uh, the other partner, Keith Deloach, is a salesman at heart. He knows how to sell you know, anything to anybody. So we had a really good brain trust of people that weren't just money people, but actually had something to bring to the business, <laughs> right? He was the only one, the other one I didn't mention. He was the brewer. He was the one that was pioneering these recipes on a back porch, small homebrew system, and really passionate about Belgian beers and doing the same triple 14 times in a row until he got the batch right, which all that together made me really enthusiastic because that's the kind of way I wanted it. I want to brew the same thing over and over again until I get good at it. I know that you cannot be good at making a beer when you make a beer once. You got to make it 20 times. You got to refine it. And they had the same philosophy that I had when it came to this. So not only did they have the funds to make this brewery, they had the funds to build a lab. They had the funds hmm. to get a good brew system uh, in uh, Newlands that was semi-automated and that had all the jackets and Everything that you could want to control your brew, they didn't need me to talk to them about. They knew that you needed those kind of things because they studied it and looked into it. So I absolutely was there to you know, equip the brew house and buy everything that needed to be bought as far as all the peripheries and things of that nature. And I was there to help scale the recipes from homebrew recipes up to production recipes with Input, obviously, from Bill McPhee, who is the brewmaster. He's the one the, who all this stuff kind of came from as far as the recipes go. So it was great to have a team. And my expertise and actually functioning a brew house fit in perfectly with what they already had to bring to the table. We definitely made mistakes. Yeah, everyone makes mistakes. But I think overall, the way the brewery functions and the equipment that we had, there hasn't been a lot of missteps. In that. And that was one of the biggest things I saw in other and in in the production side of the two breweries I worked at before, there were these huge gaps. And it was like, what do we do with this? Well, we got a, something here. You put a rubber band around this and you tie a stick to it. And then <laughs> we didn't have any of that thing. Yeah, no, I remember that too. It, and it was always something. It'd be like, well, you know, that solenoid is sort of catchy. So go kick it real quick and or whatever it takes to get it to work. But yeah, it'd be, I, 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 we worked on a system that didn't have anything wrong with it for about two years. And then it was a Prospero system. So inevitably it went to shit very quickly. Newlands, was that their choice? Did you have some insight into that? Had you seen them, worked on them in, before? Newlands to them was kind of the upper mid-tier of kind of the production brew houses for the size we were looking for. So it was really them that pursued it, and they talked to a bunch of different people. This brewery was in planning for, I think I told you, I was talking about them. I worked with them a year and a half before I did, mm -hmm. and they were already planning things. They were already shopping things. They're already looking into things. So a lot of the work was done. I came in and the floors and the, the building had already been leased and the floors had already been poured. And that's about it. But that's a lot of stuff that was the brew house was already ordered. I had nothing to do with it. That's cool. At least yeah. 
So was there any special equipment in there that, you know, you guys use that you didn't have before? Like maybe like even a yeast propagator? Did you, did you do corking cage in the beginning? Did you have corker? Like, I don't know. Like, oh, we, I mean, we hand corked everything in the beginning. I mean, listen, when we opened a Belgian style brewery, we did everything like you would expect us to do. You know, heavy glass bottles, champagne bottles, hand cork, cage, you know, everything was bottle conditioned. So we really hit the ground running with that very classic philosophy. Little things that I love that no one else cares about. We had a cable bay system for our grain instead of an auger. And it doesn't beat the husks up as much. So I got better lauders out of it and more consistent brines and things of that nature. No one cares about that. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. We got a little four barrel fermenter in kind of early to do yeast propagations because yeast is so important for what we do. Mm-hmm. We had some things in place, and then we realized we had to get other things, and we got them rather, rather quick. I've got a hood in my in my lab so that we can actually work in sanitary conditions and, and do swabs and things of that nature. All that little stuff. And some of that I, I had no experience with before because none of the breweries I worked with had any anticipation of those. <laughs> so I had a whole new education in that. And what I thought was great, clean beer that I was brewing, I looked at and went, oh, my God, I don't know anything. It can be done so much better and so much more efficiently. And we're still learning things to this day. So we continue to kind of invest in the brewery and in that way to, to make sure that our beer is good. And we've also shifted in some ways to, to different things like cans and things that aren't, aren't traditionally Belgium. And that's been a little bit of a, a wake up call. Yeah. Well, we're actually going to get to that. With all this preparation, with all this planning, with the, you know, obviously the experience, was it on budget or was there a budget? I guess the first question as far as like the building process and the equipment. And then second, did it come in anywhere near that number? Curious. There's no business has ever come in under budget or at budget. So I'm just going to say 100% no. There's no possible way. Also, knowing my partners, there's no way we came in under budget. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a thing where it's, oh, we need that. Let's go ahead and buy it. I almost guarantee it didn't come in under the original budget. But thankfully, this is not just a, this is an investment, obviously, for my partners. I was a sweat equity guy. I didn't put $1 into the business. This is a passion project for them. They're proud of what we're doing. They enjoy it. So, And it's an investment for long term as well. And they see it as, as such. So there's a right mentality around, it wasn't, wasn't just an investment. Those are a disaster because mm-hmm. then people wait a minute, we make $1.37 off a case of beer. Why are we doing this? Well, because the beer industry. Yeah. And then they that. And it's just not just a passion project where they go, hey, there's no money in the bank account anymore. I, I haven't checked it in a while. What's going on? There was a blend of those two things, which I think is the first step for anyone opening a brewery is to have a blend of the artistic nature of wanting to make the greatest beer in the history of mankind and somebody sitting there going, well, we got to make money too. But then also recognizing that you may not for a little while. For a long time. Yeah. So nothing's ever perfect on the system. When you got it in, what have you since then gone, yeah, man, we really needed this? Or is there any particular thing you added or something that you had to get, you know, re-welded or whatever? We haven't had any major screw-ups on the brew system. It's it's been a workhorse for us, really. There's been a couple of little things that are, are now like the solenoid you have to kick. The, the jackets for the mash mixer, even when the solenoid closes, it kind of creeps open a little mm-hmm. bit. When you're in your rest, you kind of got to go and, cl- and close the manual valve off. You don't want to get creep up 
on there. And that's just something we've never really addressed and it hasn't been that big of a deal. But that happened, you know, a little while after we opened up, maybe a year or so. But a lot of the things now in that brew system, I claim ignorance. I, I stepped away from the brewing almost three years ago and now I run operations. So I bet you if you're talking to my head brewer right now, he, he'd smack me in the back of the head and say, there's 14 things that are broken. Why don't you come down here? And <laughs> Remember that email I sent you, asshole? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sure there's some things like that, but we, we were lucky, you know, when we needed a yeast propagation system and a peristaltic pump, we got it. And we went and we got that so we can propagate yeast a little bit better. When we needed to go in and get a, a, a bottling line, we went in and got our bottling line. We switched off of a, a tiny little, you know, forehead machine and got into a, a decent bigger filler that could do the job that we needed to do. When we needed shelving, we got shelving. I mean, storage is one of the biggest things in the world. It's one of the things that limits what we do so much is actually having enough space to buy product in bulk to actually make money off what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And those things we've had to tweak constantly over and over again. It's always a nebulous thing, but you and you did have this and you asked about things you could do differently <laughs> in general. The major thing would probably be the glycol system. We had a company install our glycol lines that said that they could really could work on them and they knew what they were doing and they didn't. And they bleed I bleed, I mean they, they condensate like crazy mm-hmm. all over the place. Then get and mold on them. Total nightmare from day one. And that is one thing that I wish we would have splurged for the, the person who actually worked on those things and, and put it together a little bit better. But that's probably the one thing that I would look at and go, that was a problem. Well, and that's one that you can always go back and do again. Though, unlike some of the things like flooring, you're kind of fucked once you've done it. <laughs> at least you yeah. can still repair that. Um, we had to make some changes to ours and it ended up being great. And it was super easy and they did it in a day and it's just a lot. At least those are out in the open. So I did have a question about the partners. So you, a, a lot of guys that I've talked to, excuse me, and girls are considering partners when they open for a variety of reasons, spread the risk apart, um, you know, bring different expertise to the table. You kind of have a lot, right? Don't you have five or something like that? Four? It's so. me and three other guys. One of the guys' wives apparently is involved in some of early on was, I think, mentioned in some of the social media. So I think I thought about her, but... How did you manage? How do you manage that? So, does everybody have their own role? Is there, do they have to have a, a management agreement? Uh, have there ever been issues with that? You know that kind of thing. Well, when it started, I was just a head brewer, right? I was a partner, but I had nothing to do with the sales. I had nothing to do with anything but brewing. When I started as a head brewer and partner here, I was the only person that worked in the brew house, mm. bringing me back to good today. Now, a twenty barrel system, and we started on a smaller scale, smaller facility, more equipment, so it was okay, and I knew what I was doing. But I really wasn't a part of a lot of those those early uh, conversations. And yes, there was this romantic idea of what everyone was going to do, right? This person's going to do this and this person's going to do this. Well, the three partners that I have, they have full-time jobs and not just full-time jobs. We're talking, yeah, our week jobs, full-time jobs. Like actual career jobs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's only so much they can do. And we had conversations about having friends of ours come in and be bartenders and all of these all the kind of conversations you have when you're sitting on a back porch and romanticizing about what it's going to be like when you have a brewery, right? And that was probably the biggest pain point early on was realizing things that were going to be possible and the things that were not going to be possible. Who couldn't be involved and who could be involved and who had a skill set to do this and who had a skill set to do this. It's taken a long time for us all to kind of fall, in, fall into our niches and find the things that work the best for us. And we still have tons of contribution. I, if I didn't have my partners right now, I'd be at a loss. I, I, I lean on them constantly. One of my partners, Bill, he does a lot of the little, the little small graphic design stuff for us because he's proficient and knows what he's doing. 
I don't have to pay someone to do that, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the lab stuff that comes on to my partner, Matt Sadie, I don't have to worry about that. He's got it. My partner, Keith, helps me constantly with distribution and is always going out there trying to find new points for us, even though I'm in charge of distribution. So it's been a little bit of a road to get where we need to go, to get the license to go out and kind of run the brewery because when you have people put this money in and this much time in it, they want to have control of it. They, they want to think about the minutiae and the smallest details of what's going on. The best thing you can do and the best thing that I've learned to do from my position as, a, as an owner and a manager is to let some of those things go, hire the right person for the right job, and trust them. And say, if it's a big decision, bring it to me. I'll run it up the chain. If it's a small decision, make the decision yourself. If you screw up, great. Don't screw up again in that exact same way. So... Talking about this Belgian focus, obviously that was there in the beginning. That was kind of their idea. They loved Belgians. I assume that they tend to love the the heavier and maltier Belgians and not as much the, the singles and the blondes. But I'm curious, what, what was the original focus of the brewery? What were you guys going to make and what was the concept? They love the singles and the blondes. Do they? And the Faison and the, the purity of beer. There is a idea that this brewery was started started on with you're going to make the best Belgian beer in the United States. It's going to be dry. There's going to be proper attenuation. We're going to use multiple yeast strains, not just the same Chimay yeast that every single other brewery uses for their Belgian beers. We're going to use the right yeast for the wit and for the triple and for the quad. And we're really going to do this right. We're going to get fermentation time enough. And that was all from my partners who fell in love with Belgian beer when they were getting into craft beer years and years before we became friends. They traveled to Belgium. They went to these bars. They went to these breweries and said, we think we can do this. And that was the focus very, very early on. All the home brews from probably 10 years before I even came around, all Belgian beers. And yes, they love the triples and the quads because everyone does. But the wit, man, the wit was an obsession to find the right <laughs> yeast strain, fermentation temperature to make a great wit beer. And I think I said it a little bit earlier, that's what made me fell in love with this this idea of this brewery, because that's what I care about. I do want to do new stuff. But when someone comes into the brewery and I have a single and they say, your single is amazing, that makes me more proud than when they love my Imperial Stout, because my single has less space to hide imperfections. I know someone saying they love my single is saying that they love the, the recipe and the artistry of making it. And I love that. And that's what those guys love. So we were on the same page when it came to that. We wanted to do Belgians in Florida. There was no one else doing it, really. I mean, there was actually a, a, small, a small brewery down in Miami that was making some small batch kind of Belgians. I don't know if they were contracting or not. But we thought we would be a niche. And we thought that we could fill that and be the one-stop shop for all your Belgian beer needs. We found out pretty quickly that no one gave a shit about Belgian beer in South Florida. And it was going to be a freaking long, long road to hoe trying to get ourselves on the map and really establish ourselves. And it was because of the education of the beer customer down here and not even really knowing why a Belgian beer is a Belgian beer. But I also think that you go to freaking San Diego, they probably don't, a lot of people don't know why a Belgian beer is a Belgian beer. So no, it's a, it's a non-IPA at that point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a, it was a passion for doing something, doing something specific, doing something that we could be really, really good at, that other people couldn't be really, really good at. And I think that was the kind of the impetus of it. We've done that. We've worked at it. We're still working at it. But then we also are trying to look to expand a little bit because the market's changing and you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So 
Obviously, you guys started the way you should in 750 milliliter bottles, um, your large format, the way that they had always been traditionally made in Belgium. They can lay down, they age well. Um, but a couple of years later, you had to go to 12 ounce bottles. I'm curious how that conversation went with your partner. So I was against I, it in my brewery and I did the same sort of thing. I went from big bombers to small ones and I fought it tooth and nail as long as I could. So Bill McPhee, my partner, I call him the North Star right of the brewery because he is a traditionalist he wants to do everything right he wants everything to be done to make the beer the best it possibly can be and he's right he's a hundred percent right that's the way you should be able to do things that's the way you should want to be able to do things but then you have the realities of a market and i cannot put a 330 ml bottle of our wit beer into a grocery store shelf. i can't make any money off that we don't need to bottle condition a beer I certainly am not going to do that for my guava infused blonde ale. So we had to make a decision of who we wanted to be. This goes back to what we said about Do South earlier. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the brewery that just does the 750s and it's 750 markets dying completely? I mean, it's if it's not dead, it's on its last legs. Or and, and push the tasting room sales and then draft sales, or do you want to play in the sandbox and try to get your beer into grocery stores? Well, we have we have ten thousand square feet. We got twenty thousand. We have a twenty uh, barrel brew system. We've got a lot of production space. We've got to move towards that, or else we're not going to be able to survive. So, what's the option there? Well, twelve ounce bottles. We had a sales guy at the time who was pushing hard for cans, hard for cans, because he's a little bit younger than me. Kind of dynamic. He he works at other. He worked at Cigar City at one point. He knows the beer industry. He knows what what made them successful. And that was a bridge too far. No, <laughs> we were not go with that. So we went with twelve ounce long neck bottles for the our flagship beer at the time. And you know the rest is history. It's been a little bit of a slog and a and a, and a fight for every one of those concessions. And I, and I think they should be. I think they're healthy things to to argue over. But at the end of the day, we got to find a place to sell beer. Uh, at some point, you did do fucking cans. So how did that happen? Um, you did, well, you do bottles for a few years and then finally gave in and did cans? All of our core beers are in bottles. We use American Long Neck 12-ounce bottles for our two flagship beers, Single Havana, Belgian Blonde Ale with Guava, the Wizard White Ale. And then we have 330 ml bottles for our triple. It is bottle conditioned. They're the road trip bottles, as we call them, as many people call them. <laughs> and we still do about a 750 production that just comes out of the tap room and comes out seasonally in our local market. So we're still doing all the bottles that we were doing before. The canning project was added as a, oh, by the way, we can do this too. We can do an IPA. We made our first beer without Belgian yeast in 2022, actually. Last year, we did the canning for the first time, but this was the first year that we made a non-Belgian beer. And a lot of that was because our fans will always know that we make Belgian beer and we do it really, really well. We're proud of it. We've done collaboration beers with Fort Le Pen and great other Belgian beer uh, breweries. And they like what we do enough to come over and do a collaboration beer with us. And they've said nice things about our beer. We know we do that well. But there's only so much crossover appeal for that. We need to have an IPA in our portfolio. We need to be able to do other things to say, hey, guys, by the way, you can come in and check this out and enjoy this beer as well. And that was the impetus behind doing the cans. It was a project that I pushed forward really strongly. And a lot of it also had to do with getting the right people in place to do it. I hired a brewer who was literally a home brewer working at the local grocery store. 
and was a big fan of ours and came in and drank our beers and got to know him. And I was looking for someone to help in the brewery one day. I'm like, well, what about him? And we went over, I hired him and he's a prodigy. His name is Ralph. He's absolutely incredible. And he knows hops like nobody should know hops. He studies hops at all times. He knows he, I was a brewer for many years. He surpassed my knowledge in the first day that he came to work here. <laughs> And he was convinced that he could make a great IPA with our house yeast strain, which I always think Belgian IPAs taste like cough syrup. Yeah, they're and, weird usually. They, just, they don't really, the flavors don't work together. Yeah, I've always hated them. So he convinced me to do something and we decided to make a beer and it worked. And then when that worked, I said, well, let's do something else. Well, that one worked. Well, now you've convinced me that you know what you're talking about and we're actually getting good reviews on these beers and people that know these hazy IPAs are saying, oh, this is really, really good. This is a great version of that. Can I do a beer without Belgian yeast? Okay. You've convinced me. Let's give it a shot. And we did it, and the beer was absolutely fantastic. Maybe one of the best beers we've ever made. So it allows us to be to diversify a little bit, uh, and hopefully we'll continue to grow our reach and let people be exposed to barrel monks that weren't exposed to barrel monks before. So are you distributing the cans? A little bit. I don't do any. That's not true. I've done two out of the last year and a half. I've done, I think, so far seven or eight canning runs, and I've done some limited distribution in our, in our local market. Nothing that I'm, I'm trying to keep most of it special in the tap room. Mm-hmm. But I have distro. I have distro in. I have distro in ten states. Uh, small amounts between Odd Breed Wild Ales and and Barrel Monks Brewing. So I sent some cans out to Montana. I sent some cans out to Philadelphia area, a couple of different areas, but small amounts. The vast majority of the cans we produce are bought out of our tank. Well, you brought up distribution, so that's what we're going to go into next. But first, I'm going to take a quick break. Mama needs some shoes and I got to pay some bills. So I'll be right back. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Welcome back. If you can hear the excitement in my voice, I don't know why I get so excited about talking about distribution because I fucking hate it, but it isn't a necessary evil. And at some point, it's not necessarily evil. It's a necessary bad. Let's say that. I don't, let's not call it evil. But talk to me about your distribution. So clearly you would have started in, in Florida. You guys do not have self-distribution as an option. So you would have had to go straight to a distributor. And kind of how did that work with you guys specifically? Because I guess you may didn't have quite as much experience with it before. We did our due diligence and interviewed. There were three main players in our neck of the woods, our immediately local area for distribution at that time, uh, Brown Distributing, Gold Coast, and Cavalier. And Cavalier was relatively new to the area. They're, they're a big, big distributor up in the Midwest, in the Ohio area. 
but they were really getting down to Florida for the first time. And they were the uber craft small guy. And Brown was the medium guy because they had a little bit of a blood footprint. They were a blood distributor for a small area, but they were craft everywhere else. And they were very, mm. very much. In- and then Gold Coast was a Miller house. We had some craft beers in their portfolio, but they're a Miller house. They're massive. They have a giant footprint and they're for massive volume. That's what they're there for. So we did our due diligence. We talked to everybody. We ended up going with Brown Distributing. Some of it was a no-brainer for us because I was with Brown with New South. I was with Brown with Funky Buddha. I knew everybody. I knew the sales reps. When I told you a little bit earlier about the fact that our beer tasting group ended up all getting jobs in the industry, three or four of the people that were in that group worked at Brown Distributing, right? So I, I didn't just know these people in a professional setting. I knew them in a personal setting. I played basketball. So it was where I was comfortable. My partners took my recommendation and said that I think this is the best place for us to go right now. They're, they're craft focused in a lot of areas and they're going to push us and they're going to, they're going to be a good outlet for our beer. So that's, that's how we got into that. And we expanded our, our distribution with them because Brown Distributing did cover the whole state of Florida. Eventually we had the entire state with them before they started selling off their territories kind of all over the place. So did they just decide to kind of go back to the Budweiser roots, essentially, and sort of sell off the craft-only areas, or they just weren't doing well in those markets? Any idea? I don't know what the, what the deal was there. They sold off the northern area of Florida, and we're talking about Orlando North. They sold that off at the exact same time that we were set signing it with them, <laughs> basically. So we actually weren't even included in the sale. We had technically signed on the bottom on the bottom line, but they had started the conversation before that happened. So we were we had our rates free and we signed with Cavalier Distributing. They've been a good partner with us uh, since then. And then the Tampa area, which is on the west coast of Florida, down, they sold that off a year or so later and they sold that to the Bud Network. So now I had, I want to say, seven new distributors when <laughs> I had one. After I, signing with one because, partially because they were statewide? Yes. And they all said the right things and they were going to push our brand and they were going to grow with us and this, that, and the other. And, you know, it hasn't turned out very well. We, we have one really solid relationship over there with a good distributor that continually buys product with us. But we're talking about not even being able to get people to come pick our beer up. That's not worth it. They want us to take care of logistics. I'm a small brewery. I run every aspect of this brewery. I don't have the time to find logistics and trucks and stuff to bring beer back and forth. It's not on my radar. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of momentum in some markets because, and, and I mean, lost momentum. I am planogram placed in grocery stores in areas and they will not pick my beer up. In Florida? Yeah. I always, like, that one kind of blows my mind because we have the same issue. I've had distributors do the same thing. And at some point, that's the distributor's relationship with that retailer. That is the whole point of the three-tier system, that they're in the middle of the last tier so at the end of the day, like they're screwing that up just as badly. But for somehow, it seems like the distributors always get a pass on this and that they're still going to let them in to sell Budweiser next week or whatever. It's just it's frustrating to me that we're the ones that look bad when that happens. Well, you know, when it comes to that, that aspect of it, we're just not big enough for them to care. They're going to go through in those three locations in their footprint. They're going to go through 10 cases a month. They're not going to send a truck to pick up 10 cases. And if I don't have a sales rep in that market to try to bolster our sales, they're not going to put the effort into it. I'm one of those weird guys where I see exactly where they're coming completely. If I was dropped into the uh, position of power in one of those places, I might make the same same exact decisions because I've got people above me and below mm-hmm. me and all that. But it just fucking sucks. I mean, yeah. there's no other way. It's a bad situation for me to be in, to be sold to a distributor that really has very little interest in my brand. They bought my brand for other brands and now they have it 
And what I used to be able to do very easily by saying, hey, I set up, I got a new account over there, just deliver the beer. They're saying, well, now you need 20 accounts for me to come pick beer up for you. Mm. That's not what I signed up for. Literally, it's not what I signed up for. But they're also looking at it a different way. I've never met someone on my side of the brewing industry that doesn't hate their distributors with a passion on dying. I do my best to try to understand their position and try to make the best decisions I can knowing what their limitations and what they're trying to accomplish is. Because I don't, I don't know a better way out of that. Yeah, no, I definitely had distributors. Let me take the S off of that. I had distributor that I liked and that I had a good relationship with and that I felt did a good job. Um, and then you would have distributors from time to time that the right guy would get into ordering or, um, you know, the, the on-premise guy just was killing it in his route and, and that would make your sales go up. But overall, if you took it, you know, a three-year timeline, there's still a shitty distributor. But that being said, I agree with you. I see both sides. And that was one of the problems that I had towards the end is like the product that I made was all mixed culture. It was all sour. It was all going to be a niche product. And I understood that with all of these guys, they don't have time to take my phone call. They really don't. What do they, uh, I'm a rounding error on their spreadsheet. So mm-hmm. at that point, I just, it wasn't for me. I didn't want to reason I ended up selling the brewery and leaving the industry or at least leaving the production side of the industry. I guess I'm still in it to an extent, but yeah, distribution's a tough game. And one of the things I wanted to point out that you mentioned a couple times, so you got your rights sold, you're with the distributor you didn't pick that has protocols that you wouldn't have agreed to. Now, how much money did you get for the rights that were sold? <laughs> for those at home that don't understand how this works. Zero, zero dollars. My, uh, one of my partners, Keith Deloach, who and we've, we've been sold multiple times. Uh, we actually had our rights sold in our home market in the last year. Brown Distributing got completely out of the business. And they sold all their rights to different distributors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been lucky that we, we we landed in the place we want to be in. And we're actually getting the kind of attention that we feel that we deserve. And we're, we're kind of happy in our situation, which is that's that's the best situation you can imagine. That's the, the best case scenario. But one of the things that Keith always says is, you know, I want in our contract. The next time we're sold, we get 10% of the, of what you bought us for, right? Or what you sold us yeah. for. Of course, that's never going to be agreed to. And they have no need to put something like that in a contract. And they're never going to do it. It's it's one of those things where it seems from the outside looking in that this is insane, right? Someone buys your rights and you're just, you're along for the ride and you have nothing to say about it. And you get nothing from it. And oh, by the way, you might go to a place where they're not going to care about you. Your sales are going to tank 75% and good luck. Yeah, we we actually have a thing in Texas too that one of the parameters in the law is that you can't unreasonably withhold giving, allowing the sale to take place, which is the most ridiculous way of writing. This has nothing to do with you, Kelly. Stay out of it. Like, just, why don't you just say that? Like, <laughs> call it what it is. But yeah. And they, they also passed a law back when we got tasting rooms that the last minute baby tried to kill it and blah, blah, you know, shady pool. One of the laws that they passed was that it is now illegal in Texas. Not that you shouldn't, couldn't, or wouldn't. It is illegal for a brewery to sell their distribution rights to a distributor. If they own them in the beginning, they cannot sell them for any value, but they went ahead and stipulated that a distributor can then resell those for multiple millions of dollars all they want and the brewery can't get anything. Like, why would that need to be a law? That's the strangest. Listen, it's definitely, it leans in that direction and it is the hardest thing for anyone getting into this industry to wrap their heads around. I have people, friends of mine, family friends, friends that my wife went to college with. And they'll ask me, hey, how's your business doing? And they work in whatever sector. And I'll tell them and they'll say, well, you should move to a different distributor. I said, well, I can't. 
Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Oh, oh, thanks. I I never thought of that. But (laughs) you do this. And I explain this to them. And you see someone with mouth agape, not understanding what I'm saying to them. You sign a lifelong contract that is transferable to anyone, anytime, anywhere that you can't get out of for almost any reason. And why'd you do this? I had no other option. What are you going to do? Not sell your beer? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, did, we didn't want to be a brew pub. That's, that's why we did it. And yeah, thankfully, listen, when we worked with Brown, I didn't love everything with that, about working with Brown Distributing. There were tons of things that frustrated me. But overall, they had a bunch of sales reps that cared about craft beer. They listened to what we had to say. They helped us grow. There were definite good aspects of working with them. Working with Gold Coast and Cavalier, my current like major distributors, Suncoast is another one over on the, the west coast of Florida. Working with those guys is good. They, they return phone calls. <laughs> they seem to care about our brand and they're willing to do a little bit of work with us. But we've got other people that are basically, we're a non-entity. They'll just hold us hostage until they can find some way to get some money for them, from us because they say, well, we bought you for the X amount. Mm. Well, yeah, you you bought us based on what you perceive value, but I haven't sent you beer for two years. So you have zero sales for two years. You killed and, the value, not me. Like, yeah. And now you want another distributor to pay $6,000 for my rights? Why would they do that? There's no sales history. Yeah, they're starting from scratch at this point. Yeah. So, and, and we've had some similar situations out in the in the greater market with Aubrey and Barrel Amongst where we've done some distribution outside of the uh, outside of the state where people get very, very interested in your brand early on because they're new, right? They're brand collectors. They want to get new, fun stuff. And then once it kind of the new stuff wears off, they're not as interested in returning your phone call because they've got another brand that they're pursuing. Mm-hmm. And actually for, and we have, I know we haven't talked about this a lot and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun on this. And I know we've been talking for a while, but Odd Breed is a mixed culture, wild ale brewery, with a sister brewery of ours. That is the epitome of boutique, tiny, niche, untapped darling. So everyone wants that beer in their portfolio, but pushing that beer and actually getting people and educating them on it is another thing altogether. So you sell it to them one time and they're like, great, we've got this amazing beer that gets 4.5 and untapped. And we put it on a shelf in you know, the middle of the Midwest and it just sits there. Well, yeah, but we got to do something about that. Yeah, you have to actually work the market. I actually had that issue in uh, Florida, in fact. So I sent... I sent some bombers and some mixed culture stuff down to Progressive and they had kind of early on, they got in some placements and we ended up having a meeting where we did essentially a you know phone conference call and a tasting right there. They opened some bottles, great feedback and literally nothing happened since then. And so it just sat there and I was like, well, I guess I'm not distributing to Florida anymore. You were with Progressive mm-hmm. for a while. It was not a great relationship. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're the same sort of thing. They're the, the boutique guys that they sell what people want. They don't necessarily go and to create demand in the marketplace. And, and I get that. Distributors in general don't. They're not very good at it anyway. So they'll, they'll do it for Budweiser because they're getting kicked back or whatever, but they tend not to do it for any of the independent guys. Especially when there's so many in their portfolio. I mean, how do you stand out when you look at a portfolio with 150 breweries in their call, right? Well, so you brought up Oddbreed. That was actually my next question. I am not making that up. It's, it's written down. I can show it to you. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you how that came about. And one of the reasons was that I had written the book in 2019 as what I would consider one of the last great sort of catastrophes where I was you know, facing extinction and we had made some plans to fix it. And one of the things that I had done and one of my plans was to merge with another brewery because uh, we were going to be the, basically the sour arm of the brewery, the mixed culture guys. And, and, and I wanted a 
pure culture brewery that did had some reach and had some interest. And in my situation in Texas, I found out that everybody I called was also not profitable. And so, I decided that two unprofitable breweries combined together was only going to make it worse, not better. So, I didn't do it. But I thought it was a great idea. You had did something similar. So, I'm curious how that came about. And obviously, how it's been working out for you guys. So, Matt Manthe, as I mentioned before, was my my partner in Oddbreed, was the person that helped me become a commercial brewer and someone who I had a I, help, I hold in very high esteem. As far as a pure brewer, technical, understands every style. He is still the best brewer in the state of Florida, in my opinion. He is one of the best brewers in the country. I think he's that good. Technically, he understands absolutely everything, whether he's making a Dortmunder or he's making a Culture Wild Ale or he's making an IPA. He knows everything when it comes to that because he's studied and he's put the work in. So Matt opened up Audrey Wild Ales with another partner, uh, with another major partner and some investors a couple years you know, after Barrel Amongst had started. And they are everything sees a barrel. For at least seven months, everything is mixed culture. They grew their mixed culture. They cultivated it. It's all real fruit. Everything he does, it's it's the way we started Barrel Amongst, the right way to do this style of beer in every way, shape, form. He opened this in, in Florida thinking, well, I'm the one-stop shop. I'm the only one that's really doing this this <laughs> way. And this, this is before Smoothie Sours came in. This is even before Florida Weisses really, I guess maybe not. Maybe it was around the same time. I don't know. Have you ever heard the term Florida Vice? You know, I have, but now I'm I'm second guessing what it is. It's just like it's a kettle sour with more fruit than beer, and that is was the first like sours that took off down here. It's basically like if you just carbonate raspberry juice and put a little fermented beer in there, then you got a Florida Vice. I've made plenty of those, by the way, in my previous lives. So I, I I'm I'm also you know throwing shade on myself uh, in what I'm saying, but. I'm happy to give you a forum to do that. So I'm glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> he was the one that was going to do it right. Right. He does. He's got beers. He's doing three year blended beers. People that are drinking classic Belgian sour ales are drinking these beers and going, this is the right way to do it. And at this point, we sell beer in China. We sell beer in Singapore. We sell beer in South Korea. We sell beer all over Europe. People love these styles of beer. But in our local market, not so much. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to convince people to go in there and enjoy these beers. And uh, at one point, his partner was looking to get out. They were producing wort at our brewery almost since day one because they don't have a brew house. They produce a batch, put it in basically a wine tote, uh, a large square mm-hmm. rectangular vessel, and drive it over to their facility and fill up their barrels with it. And because we can do step mashes and we have the right equipment, which we're one of the few breweries in all of South Florida, maybe in all of Florida that can do step mashes, by the way. That's not something that anyone cares about. We do <laughs> control our enzymes, but other people don't. They don't need to. We do. So we have one of the few systems that can do that. So we were partners early on. We were friends. And when his partner was looking to get out, he came to us and said, hey, are you interested in Barrel Amongst? You guys buying into this business and there, we are already brewing beer here. We already have a relationship. You've got sales reps. I don't. So it took some time for all that thing to, all those things to come together. And it's been a mixed bag. It's still hard to sell those beers. It's still really hard to get people behind them. They're expensive as all get out. But the quality is exactly what you're talking about when you had your, your, your little meeting with Progressive. Anytime I send beer to anybody, they lose their minds and talk about how great the beer is 
and how they would do anything to represent this. But that second, third, fourth order is a really, really tall, tall order because the pull through on those beers is, is at such a small audience. Well, so, they still, are you still sending them out in large format? So we do 375 for some beers, 500 ml for some beers, and 750 for some beers. No cans, no 12, everything's bottle conditioned. We keg condition everything. Mm-hmm. Everything has to, has to undergo uh, that, that natural fermentation to get the ageability and the mouthfeel. This is an uncompromising idea of what this brewery is going to be. And because of that, it really kind of pigeonholes us in things. And we're trying new things every day to try to get that beer out there. There's enough people that want it. We just have to find a way to get to every single one of them, even with the small production that we have. And every day we're thinking about new ways to do that. Yeah, it was one of the issues that I had is that uh, we made basically the same sorts of things. And we grew our own culture, barreled everything, and same concept. But uh, at the end of the day, the, the beer we became the most known for was a pickle juice sour beer in 12-ounce bottles because we could make a shitload of it. It was cheap. It was you know unique and different. We did send some of that to Florida, and actually that almost revived the brand if they would have bought more. I think it almost it was exclusively sold through Total Wine, I think, but they did buy quite a bit of it. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what we found is the same thing. You, we couldn't go deep in the market, so we had to go wide. And so I was in at one point, like seven states, and I, it got so exhausting trying to force them to buy beer and they're like, hey, dude, we need to pick something up. You're running out at these stores. They're calling me. Um, and I just got frustrated. And so, then we started seeing the, the large format just getting ripped. I don't know if there's a place to sell large format in Texas outside of like three retailers. And I don't mean chains. I mean actual places. <laughs> so. It's difficult. I've had the same conversation with every distributor for seven years because Barrel Lamont started with 750 as well, saying, can we not do those? Can we do anything else other than those? And then even when it comes to 500 and 375 ml, can you get us smaller? Can you get us 500 ml and 375? No problem. We're doing that. Okay. Can you get us like 12 ounce four packs? Because that's all we really can sell, right? Because everything else is just on the shelf and gathering dust in the kind of places that we should be able to be a major player. in. And and that's fortunately the way the industry has gone and you know, maybe it's inevitable. Maybe there's a swing back at some point, but all we can do is just pivot, try to do something different, try to do something unique. And like you said, I love that. I can't go deep, so I have to go wide. So find those different outlets. And strangely enough, it's been the, those, uh, uh, those countries in Asia mm-hmm. that are buying a ton of this beer and for extremely high prices. I mean, we're, we're not giving them a discount. It's, it's even more expensive because they got to take a freaking long boat ride to get over there. But they're buying the most expensive stuff that we have. Do you guys and distribute with Beervana over there? Beer, I'm not familiar with them. No, yeah. we, we've got we've got a couple partners that are brokers and this, that, and the other. But that we're working with. I had one of the guys from Beervana on the show a while back, and he was telling me stories about how they have literally air freighted IPA pallets from New York to Vietnam. I don't. He wouldn't even tell me what it costs. He was like, "It doesn't matter. I'm not going to tell you." But we sold it for more than we spent. Trust me. And I was like, "Jeez." So, anyways, he would. I'm sure he would buy your stuff if you uh, call him. Chad's a cool guy. Always oh, good. Listen, all those connections are. That's the thing that I don't think people realize is that it only takes one. Sometimes it only mm-hmm. takes one market. It only takes one person, thing, place, animal, vegetable, mineral, whatever. Invest in your brand when you're small to kind of put you over the edge and, and really make your business go. Now, then it only takes one to 
crush it, right? <laughs> so you go and you get this big account. You're like, I got this big account. And then you ramp up your production for that big account and then you lose it in a year and then you go, well, now I'm fucked. Yeah. Well, luckily the so, stuff you guys make and the stuff that I made, if it sits, it's okay. In some most cases, it's better, but that's not the yeah. case for everybody. But I'm, I'm saying more like, well, where where do, where does my, my income come if that person stops picking that beer up? Or the, the biggest fear, every single person, I don't know a lot of people that are trying to get into this industry Everyone wants to be in the grocery store because they want the prestige. They want to, their friends to be able to go and buy it. I'd love to be in the Detroit area distributing my beer so my dad can buy <laughs> my beer program, right? I want that. I want my dad to be able to go, this is my son's beer. He can't do that. But they have no idea the pressure that puts on you to say, once you get that spot, you have to be hoarded like, a, like an ogre. You cannot let go of that because if you get turned on in 250 locations and going through a case a week at each one of those locations, great. What happens if I lose it? Mm-hmm. What if they pick somebody else next time? What happens if the sales aren't quite big enough? I, I lose sleep at night thinking about those kind of things. What happens if, if I am as, as successful as I want to be? That's going to suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's going to be tough. Well, it's just way more risk. Like we had that issue with our distributor um, a year before I sold. We had ramped up to a production level we had never done. It was at this point, I, I now don't recall, but I believe it was 950 cases a month of one product. And we sent in 950 in September, 950 in October. And then that was essentially it for four months. They just stopped ordering. And I called them like, guys, what are we doing? Oh, let me call you tomorrow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask some guys and I'll find out for you what's going on. And they literally never answered the question and were never able to do it. Uh, that's full clip craft distributors, by the way. So, don't ever go to full clip craft distributors. <laughs> it's not It's not a show if I don't call one guy out. So, yeah. Yeah. So, big question. We've talked about a lot of things. After 12 years in this industry, how do you prevent burnout? What do you do to balance the stress of this? all of this shit we've been talking about? I do my best to disconnect when I'm not working. I, I come to the office and I do my work and I don't answer emails. I don't look at emails. I stay away from the business as much as possible in my off hours. I focus on the things I love. I have a four-year-old son. I have a wife. We go do things. We, yeah, just do normal stuff. I don't drink beer all the time. <laughs> I drink whiskey. I drink tequila. I drink wine. And I, I, I try to disconnect from the beer industry as much as possible. And every time on a weekend that I get an email or something kind of pops into my brain, it makes my weekend a little bit worse. Yeah. Right. So I try, I try to compartmentalize those things as much as possible. And then I, I get lucky. You know, we were talking a little bit about this and I, I got your vibe on the cans pretty early on. Uh, how you feel about that with our Belgian beers? But I will say that when we started that new project and we had an IPA for the first time, we had some, some beers that were a little bit different for us. It was a little bit reinvigorating to me because it was like, okay, well, we can do yeah, something different. Get that. And by the way, that, and I'm, I mean, of course, I'm a little bit pious, but it was really, really good. And when I can proudly bring it to a brewer, and I don't give a shit what they say on Untapped or Beer Advocate or whatever, right? Because that's a perception. And we're lucky to have some good scores, bad scores, and different scores, what have you. When I take those things to brewers and they go, that's the best IPA I've had in like six months. And I go, yeah, and a Belgian brewery made it. Think about that. <laughs> and I get a little bit of, I get buffed up a little bit by that. And I get to drink that and think about it and get a little bit excited about what we're doing and feel like, yeah, we're, we're on the right track. We're doing some good things. Uh, th- those are the things. It's trying to reinvest in what we're doing and, and be hopefully pleasantly surprised by it. And then when I am time to, to draw the curtains and not play around in that world anymore, shut it out, 
and and do some things that are really important. All right. So being proud helps. So let me let me ask you this: What are you the most proud of in your entire career so far? We'll clarify. I think that this business. It's, it's taken its lumps and it hasn't always been perfect, but I think this business has been a good place to work. And I think that we provided a, a, a place for people to grow, learn a trade, grow in their skill set, and give opportunities in the future. That's what I always wanted when I wasn't in a position of management, was a place to be a little bit nurtured, understanding that maybe this isn't forever, but when you go out there into the woods, you're going to have some opportunities. And yeah, it's never, it's never perfect. I, I'm sure you could talk to people that work for us and said, Oh, that guy was a monster or that was tough. <laughs> hours were too long. Do you have his there's, number? There's no I'd like to call that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd always love to hear what they have to say, but I think in general, we've been able to, to, to have an environment where people feel valued and get a chance to, to learn a skill and be proud of what they make. And that's really what I want. And I, and I have it now. So. That, that's the thing. That's good. That's a win. So there's 9,000 breweries in the United States. How many do you think is too many? 7,000? <laughs> I, I think there are way too many breweries. I, I know that I'm in the house and telling other people not to build one. And that's a little bit disingenuous. But there are too many people fighting for too few spots in coolers, on draft lines. And... There's a lot of bad beer out there. A lot of bad beer. I'm sure there are people that think my beer is bad beer. There's someone that thinks, oh, that shitty brewery down the street is taking up my market share. We have that. The myth that everyone gets along and everyone's the best friend <laughs> and everyone's trying to help each other out at all times. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. There are lots of people in this industry, my local area, the national area that I love, that I will turn people on to and say, well, yeah, you know, they're looking for this. I don't have it in my portfolio, but go talk to these guys or talk this brewery up and say, yeah, they're doing the right thing the right way. But when it gets down to the the nitty gritty of things, there are way too many of us fighting for way too small a space. And it's not about quality and how it fleshes out. It's about marketing. It's about visibility. When I got into this industry, I thought that if I just made great beer, that I'd be successful. And then I realized it does not matter how good your beer is. Nobody cares how good your beer is because good is perceptive. It's perception. It's, it's, it's personal of what people think good is. That's been a, <laughs> a pretty big awakening. <laughs> and I think that, I think that a, a shrinking of our, our industry is going to hurt a lot of people. I don't want that for anybody, but will probably be a better thing long term for our industry. Yeah, I, I was on the Brewbound podcast well, a week or two ago, and I, I think I said something similar. I, I use the number 6,000 for me, but it's unfortunate because people are going to lose their life savings. They're going to lose their job and what they do day to day and the passion that they have behind it. But the reality is this is just unsustainable. There's just no way around it. The, the market share is not growing commensurate with the number of breweries growing such that market share is shrinking per brewery around the country. In other words, every new person that comes in is taking dollars out of somebody else's pocket. And while... Some breweries deserve that. Some of them that don't are still going to hurt from it. So if there's a cupcake stand on your favorite corner of your downtown strip and you go, man, that guy's making really, really good cupcakes. I'm going to open a cupcake stand on the other side of the street. Doesn't matter how good your cupcakes are. 
There's not enough people that want cupcakes. I mean, <laughs> simple, simple stuff. These waves go in and people say, I can buy into this. I like this. I like the culture. And they're not thinking about it long term. They're not thinking about all the ramifications of it for the greater market or even for themselves. Yeah, I agree. All right, last question. Who do you think is more of an asshole, Miriam? Well, that's an easy question to answer. It has to be me because <laughs> I've known myself for 40 years. I know all the things that I think. I know all the things that I've done. I mean, we've been talking for a couple hours here. So I'm sure if I knew you longer, it would be you. But for now, I think it has to be me. Okay. At least you're positive that it would be me, then that's fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm usually my best behavior on these podcasts too. So as a friend of mine, Harry likes to say, catch me outside. We'll see how it turns out. I have found you nothing but the most utmost professional. This is uh, this has been a, this has been a treat. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate you joining. So, tell us how to find you guys. Obviously, Barrel of Monks, but how is it? Where's the socials, the internets? If you've got a porn site, whatever it is, like share it with us. That I won't share. That was a long time ago. I was a younger man then. But Barrel of Monks Brewing, you can just search us on Google. I mean, Barrel of Monks Brewing, barrelofmonks.com. You can find us there. Uh, Instagram is Barrel of Monks. Uh, Facebook's Barrel of Monks. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff coming up here uh, soon. We've got new beers releasing all the time. Please check us out. If you're in the Florida area, we've got a nice little tasting room. And then Oddbreed Wild Ale, it's the same thing. You can find us on, on the interwebs and follow us on social media. We don't do any sales outside. We can't send beer outside of Florida. We can't do any of those kind of things because of the nature of our business and the laws here in. But you can find us on some of the platforms like Osner, things of that nature, if you have proxies and stuff and you want to get some of our more special rare beers down here in Florida. Cool. Well, it sounds to me like that's a great opportunity to do that. And uh, I look forward to trying some myself. So I, I haven't had it yet and I need to. So I'm a sour fan and mixed culture guy. So I'll definitely pick some up. But I appreciate you sharing everything with us. I know there's a lot of stuff in there. I held you for a couple of hours and you hung in great. And I, I you did it. You're a champion. Thank you very much. I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media. Media.